So at the end of last week's message, I talked about the experience of beginner's mind, of starting, starting out on the path of spiritual practice. We can experience a freshness, a vitality, a relationship with this life that previously we had not known. It is very much, in some ways, like a birth or a spiritual rebirth. It opens up great opportunities for us, invites us to see the world in new ways, not see things by rote, but instead see things as if they may have been on the first day of creation, because in fact what happened on the first day of creation is still happening right here and right now. It is not over. Our lives are not over. But along with that freshness, along with that vitality, can also come some frustration and some fear when we experience beginner's mind because we don't know exactly what is going to happen to us. A lot of us as adults, we sometimes say that we want to look back fondly on what kids can experience, that kids don't know how well they have it until it's gone. Well, beginner's mind is a way to capture that, recapture that. But it may be a challenge for us. My favorite line in all of the Christian scriptures is the moment where Jesus points to a child and says, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, become like one of these. But that can be a difficult place to be. At that point, when you experience beginner's mind, we have a choice. We can either become childish or childlike with this newfound experience that we are undergoing. The child is part of ourselves, the part that wants to get its own way, that is impatient, that wants to say, now, I want it now. As Homer Simpson once said to Coyote with the voice of Johnny Cash, give me some enlightenment or I'll mop the floor with you. That is childishness. We lash out. We say we must have it here and now. Or we can cultivate with our beginner's mind childlike qualities. The capacity for wonder and awe and the ability to say what we have now is sufficient and we will not rush headlong into the next moment having to secure the wisdom that we have already possessed. We will remain open. So the question is, in this message series, next steps for your spiritual fitness plan, how do you keep that energy open? How do you maintain it? How do you maintain it for the long haul? Well, this morning I have both a confession for you and an odd model to offer you. I'm a fan of certain reality TV shows. And yes, I believe they are, at times, a good model for maintaining your spiritual growth. I love Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I love The Biggest Loser. I love What Not to Wear. And when I say love them, sometimes I will even pick them over a ball game. <sighs> Don't tell the straight guys club, they will kick me out. What I love about these shows is that they contain stories of cooperation, of transformation. Yes, there's competition in them, but at their heart, in helping people grow and change 
it really does model a sense that we are all in this together. There are manifold stories, and you can Google them, and you see them over and over again. That one of the keys to changing your physical fitness, growing in your body, is whether or not you have social support to be able to maintain your regimen of exercise. You are much less likely to maintain the changes you have made if you're doing them on your own versus if you're doing it in a community that encourages you and that supports you. It is analogous to maintaining a spiritual practice, and this is where many traditions invite us to remember, don't go it alone. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am as well. In the Jewish tradition, the minyan is a gathering of ten in prayer, and you have to have ten. Even in Zen Buddhism, which is based upon what would seem to be a solitary practice of being with the breath, it is so often done in what they call session. It is done together. Now, our own Unitarian and Universalist traditions, they offer us some resources in this way, but they offer, unfortunately as well, some counterexamples, a kind of childishness that says, I want it my own way. Emerson, who I quote all the time, if you've been around for a while, also penned perhaps the worst, most damaging essay in the history of spiritual education. It's not that he was entirely wrong when he wrote about self-reliance. It was that he was so extreme. Emerson's conception of self-reliance is that if you are joining your life to another life in any particular way, you are compromising who you are. It is, in some ways, just as bad if you remember reading at any point Nietzsche, The Will to Power. Emerson sounds exactly the same way in his arrogant insistence that you are only as free as you are far from other people, and you are only as enlightened as your light has a chance to shine away from other people's light. Fortunately, there are other resources in our tradition. It's the teachings of interdependence which is that regardless of where we are, how we grow, who we are, there is always relationship. We are always relating to something, someone, some place, some deeper reality in this life. At Wellsprings, this is how we say it. We believe that our freedom finds its fulfillment in our connection with others. That our freedom to be most truly free has to find a link up with each other and with other people for us really to flourish. At a basic level, this is just about resources, the wisdom of crowds. People will have other resources that you will not have as a solitary individual. It's just a fact. Others in community will have gifts that you yourself do not possess. And I had a great demonstration of this about five weeks ago. I preached a message, and I think I was talking about reaching the sort of end of yourself. And when you reach the end of yourself, you actually can experience a moment of rebirth, a moment of deeper clarity, a moment to start over again. But you have to reach it, and it's scary. And I said, I could not, for the life of me, remember the name of the book. And all I did was I think I quoted you two sentences, and maybe you all are better with the Google than I am. Because within a week, four or five, maybe it was even six of you, got back to me and said, that's Mark Jenkins. The book is called The Hard Way, Stories of Danger, Survival, and the Soul of Adventure. Well, and actually in that book, there's a great story of interdependence and working together. 
He's talking about going skydiving with his brothers. He grew up, he said, truly on a farm, truly in a context in which it is all stiff of her lip. Boys, don't cry. Hold your emotions in. And he's saying that beyond all the bluster of he and his three brothers going on these extreme sports adventure outings time after time after time, that what is there is a reminder at base of how much they love each other and how deeply their relationship connects them. So thank you, those of you who participated in this little experiment in having a hive mind. You helped me know what I did not know. And indeed, parts, parts of connecting ourselves to others is that we increase our capacity for know-how. But when we sustain and generate our relationships, it's about much more than just learning to do something. More importantly, we can experience being guided through times of life that are difficult, through times that are lonely, through moments when we may not know if we can make it truly on our own. We can maintain continuity and presence even through discomfort. I remember when about 15 years ago, I first started meditating my first meditation teacher. And I remember her quoting, I think it was actually a Catholic monk, a guy named Thomas Keating. And although her practice was Buddhist meditation, she said, here, I want to tell you this. She said, please listen. Meditation is not a relaxation technique. No spiritual practice is. Because what happened when I started sitting in meditation, I actually was still enough to recognize the racing that was going on in here. I recognize, as the Buddhists call it, my monkey mind for the first time in my life. And if I had not had her gentle hand to guide me, you know what I would have done? I would have quit. I would have said, this isn't peaceful. I'm not learning anything. I'm not relaxing. What good is this? Childishness. She gave me a simple little tool that I've shared with some of you before. She said, if you find your mind is racing and you want to leap headlong into that next moment, she said, breathe in with the question, what am I? Breathe out. Don't know. Breathe in. What am I? Breathe out. I don't know. That is a great way of holding open the space that needs to remain open if we're going to continue to grow in depth and clarity and purpose. Teachers, really good teachers, can help us build trust in our experience when we don't have that trust yet inside of our own hearts. I want to show you a clip from a movie right now. It's called Phoebe in Wonderland. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It is sort of a retelling in some ways of the Alice in Wonderland story. And the main character that we're going to see in just a second is Phoebe. She is, um, well, uh, clinically, I guess you would say she's not terribly well-adjusted. She is original, she is creative, she does not see the world the way that many of her peers do. And she has found an outlet for her creativity in acting. She wants to play the role of Alice in Alice the Wonderland in what they're going to put on in a play. And she's talking with her teacher and she's looking at the stage and she's recognizing all of her fears. Please show it. I am so scared. We all are. Reminds me of when I was a teenager. 
probably the wisest words that I heard. And I was going through a really tough time. And one of my best teachers sat me down and just said, you're lonely right now. And you're going to be so for a while. And then you're not. And just hearing someone say that to me was enough. In the same way that Phoebe hears that other people are scared as well. This is what a wise teacher can do for us. Let us know that the feelings we have, especially as we begin a spiritual practice and we start to look at our lives in some different ways and perhaps don't always like what we see. They give us permission to, as they say, feel the fear, feel the anger, feel the uncertainty, and still walk forward anyway. Because it's all right. And it is okay. Now, it's also important to remember that all teachers, and I say this as one, all teachers are deeply imperfect. Teachers will inevitably disappoint us, and no doubt they have you. And it's at that point that we can learn the practice of forgiveness. That is ultimately what community really teaches us. The necessity of forgiveness because we are all imperfect. There are indeed the greatest blessings of being in community that come through this recognition of our imperfection. Community will hold up a mirror to you of who you really are and who other people are. Because to put it bluntly in the most blunt terms that I can... Other people are really annoying. <laughs> Including me. Other people will annoy the hell out of you. Sometimes the closer you are to them, the more they will annoy you. Now in spiritual practice, that's a good thing. That means you're paying attention. And that means you can start to learn. And we can start to learn. My favorite writer is a woman named Kathleen Norris, who is an oblate, a sort of lay member of a Catholic monastic community. And she's there a couple times a year for a few months. And she describes the real wisdom of monastic community is not that it's holy and not that it's taken away from the world. But when you spend enough time in the monastic community, you actually live with other people and you get to know them. You see the people who aren't as bright as you. And you see the people who don't quite get it like you do. And you see the people who aren't quite there all the way and you start to recognize your own annoyance and you start to recognize your own impatience and as you become more fully more fully acquainted with their eccentricities and with their oddities you have a choice you can say this place is imperfect and I'm moving on to find the perfect place or you can start to recognize that the reason you are so annoyed the reason sometimes particularly one or two other people really digs at you is they remind you of yourself. That's why you are so annoyed. That's why you are so discomforted. And that's why you can learn the most important level of forgiveness there is, which is forgiveness of yourself for your own imperfections so that you might be able to grant it authentically to offer forgiveness to other people. If you're in a community of practice, and we here at Wellsprings, we're a community of practice. We get a chance to remember, especially if you're one of those people who says to yourself, I don't suffer fools gladly. Well, the greatest fool that you are suffering gladly, look in the mirror and you will see that person. Being in community teaches us patience. 
You remember what Gandhi said? That he had three enemies. One was the British Empire. He knew how to deal with them pretty easily. The next was the Indian people. They were a little tougher because he was a little closer to them. He was of them. But he said, finally, there's really only one enemy I have that I have no control over. His name is Mohandas K. Gandhi. (laughs) If he can't get a handle on his own inner life, you can't either, and it's all right. (laughs) Give yourself permission to experience your imperfections and recognize that others will allow you to see those. Others will show us what they call the shadow side of our own egos. And others will as well, as we practice and learn and grow together. They will offer us the greatest of blessings, which is that we can be reminded of our own light when sometimes it looks like our own light has been put out for good. So Friday night, Teresa and I were at the North Star Bar to see Eli Paperboy Reed and the True Loves. Awesome. 24-year-old Jewish kid who sounds like Wilson Pickett. And Otis Redding at times and Sam Cooke. He's incredible. But we didn't get to stay for the show. About an hour before the show was going to start, I pulled out my Blackberry and I checked it because I wanted to see the scores for the basketball game. (laughs) And I saw that I had a message. And the tagline, the subject line was, love you, Ken. And it was from a friend whose name I hadn't seen in quite a number of years. And I thought, okay, it's the week of my birthday. He must have found out about it, and he's just sending me a message. I read on. It was not a birthday message. It was a suicide note. That's why we didn't see the show. It went on in some real specific detail. And after hours of searching, we left, went home, tried to contact anyone who might know this person. And by the way, I mean this. None of this or any of you or anyone that you know here. I wouldn't be sharing the story if it wasn't someone that you will probably never meet. But hours later, I tracked this friend of mine down who I had not seen in many, many years. I tried to make sure some help was headed his way. And then uttering to myself this prayer, just to myself real quickly from the Psalms, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you and God. I called him. He had Googled me. He saw that I was a minister. And then he sent me a message. Myself and one other person wanted us to know that he was going to kill himself. And we started talking, and I could hear sadness and guilt and self-loathing and substance abuse. And I just listened. I just listened. I wanted to keep him there on the phone as long as I could. And we started talking, this old and frankly forgotten friend of mine, he said, without anger, but just sadness, I live in a different reality from you, Ken. I live in a different world. And we talked, and we talked, and we talked, and I got the sense that maybe he was pulling back from what he was threatening to do. And he kept extolling me. He kept saying, look at the life you've built. Look at everything you've done. I saw your congregation. You're doing great stuff with your life. And I always knew that you would. For we knew each other over 20 years ago. I always knew you'd do great stuff. And the problem was every time 
that he put me up on a pedestal. He ground himself into the dirt. And then the words that I had been searching for came to me. I said, my friend, I know this is not going to cure your depression. I know this is not going to overcome what you're feeling. But maybe it'll just help you keep you in this life a little bit longer. I said, the only reason that you can recognize in me something that is admirable and something that you love is because that part of you still lives. Underneath all that sadness and all that pain that you are feeling, there is still light in you. And there is still something that is very much worth loving. And his response? That's reasonable. (laughs) Yes, it is. Being connected, and hopefully being connected in a way that we don't have to wait as the decades go by and we find ourselves in such a position of pain and sorrow and suffering. Being in community and remaining connected, especially when we are practicing together. We overcome the final and the worst of all of our illusions that we, and as my friend felt, he was terminally unique. We can recognize our own light and we can see our own shadows in other people. This is a blessing, the greatest blessing, because we know that we are not alone. Now, I don't know what will happen to my friend, and I know my words are limited. I do not have. I'm very conscious of God-like powers. But he's still here with us, and I hope he'll be, and I'm trying to get him help. My favorite, my favorite quote about the nature of the spiritual life is by Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun. She said that many of us, especially when we start a spiritual practice, we imagine that the journey is up and up and up and up to the top of the mountain where the air will be clear and our lives will be pure and we will be untroubled. No. She says, the spiritual journey is down and in. It is not away from, it is toward. As we go down and down and down and in and in and in, we start to see our lives in so many others' lives. We start to see that thousands, millions of people are working together in the same direction, away from suffering and ignorance and into the deeper reality of who we are and what our lives contain. And what she says at the bottom, and we have many different names for it. We can call it God. We can call it spirit. We can call it Buddha nature. I don't care. She said that what we find at the base is the healing love and water compassion that will not ever dry up. That is what we find, and that is who we can be. Something is there when we gather. Something is there when we can, as the Beatles said, 
Where did all those lonely people come from? As Paul McCartney sang, we can see that they're right here amongst us and we are in fact in one of them. And that our loneliness is abated through that recognition. This is finally what our mission means here at Wellsprings, to be charged full with the charge of the soul. It is not anything wild. Sometimes it's not even all that energetic. But it is truly and deeply real that we can see this charge is always between us, always gathers us, and always can hold us. It means down, and it means in. But it also means having the only real faith that there ever is for any of us, which is not a content we can hold in our hands, but an experience of the meaningfulness of this life, and that we are not alone. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Simple prayer today. God, divine spirit, eternal force animating all life. Invite us to open our hearts. Invite us to open our hearts so that we can see the light and we can know the shadow. And that through knowing this, the blessing on our lives may be called wholeness. Amen.